of you may not have children that you want to introduce to this topic and they are prepared to have a larger than normal group. Uh, ages are expanded uh, for that today. Um, so we are continuing a, a series we're doing this year and that every uh, so often we have what we call a big question Sunday. Uh, and so this is our third one this year so far. Uh, in which some people have circled this date um, and um, either decided to be here or not be here, uh, as the case may be. Uh, But it is the question of homosexuality um, and living uh, as a believer in what is an increasingly pro-homosexual society. Um, So how many of you uh, got up and watched the uh, wedding yesterday. There's a few, a few. They said, well, they're going to be up anyway, so they're going to be up. How many of you watched clips of the wedding yesterday? Okay, yeah, there's a few more understandably saying, yes, I watched part of I watched parts of that as well, or listened to parts of it. Um, and I've, I've never been really thankful uh, for a monarchy, uh, but I think yesterday I was thankful uh, for a, a monarchy, uh, just not in my country, uh, but glad for it in England. Um, and, and what specifically I was thankful for, uh, of course, that I had heard uh, people raving about the, uh, the, the dress. They didn't know what to call a sermon, a, an address, and that they were shocked in Britain to have such a thing like this. And I listened to it. I thought, well, this sounds somewhat normal. Um, it, and it is uh, kind of, I guess, an American thing. Uh, basically, but you had a bishop, an Anglican bishop, an African-American uh, Anglican who has been uh, serving in Raleigh for a number of years in a, in a church. Um, and so was leading the, uh, the, the wedding sermon and uh, just really kind of spoke into about love and, and where it comes from, uh, from, from the Lord and from God. And I thought, well, you know, it's good in this society that there's millions of people watching this to hear someone say that love comes from God, love comes from truth, and it is something that does have some balance to it uh, that is unique. Uh, It is a a message that unfortunately uh, has grown scarce uh, in America and in society as, as a large to know that there is some things of love that is married to this idea of truth. And that is not just divorced from truth and denigrates into sentimentality. Uh, And so uh, with that thought in mind, I I want to uh, just address this. And and we're going to have multiple scriptures that we're going to look at today as opposed to one primary text. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be back in the book of James uh, as we'll be looking at how wholeheartedness impacts speech uh, in a positive way as we uh, left off. Uh, but until that time, uh, let's look at this issue of homosexuality. And I'm going to speak a little bit and just give you some questions that have come at me, questions that have come at you, maybe things that you have in your own heart and mind as we look into this. But it is uh, increasingly, for those of you who are my age and older, are close to my age, uh, we have seen a society shift. I was talking with some of our youth uh, earlier today and that they have not seen the same society shift that those of us in the mid-30s and up have seen and noticed and still are trying to get accustomed to. Uh, in this world where we see uh, a shift of acceptance of sexuality, 
what we have seen as different, as something we're getting used to, is the society that the young people, the 20s and younger, have always known. I, uh, Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres has always been a successful talk show host uh, in their mind. In my mind, I remember her as the one who was the first openly uh, gay uh, uh, character uh, in, in a sitcom that felt. Um, and so uh, that is just the shifting that we see that's happening in our society. I believe that if we were to write the Bill of Rights today, that one of the top few Bill of Rights would be the right for sexual expression. Uh, and it, in effect, is rank, ranking right in there with freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And somewhere along the way, it would be in that top three, uh, and the order of it depends on who you talk to. Uh, and so it is functioning in America, politically and otherwise, culturally, as this is the, one of the number one Bill of Rights freedoms of sexual expression. And so that is the world that we live in whether we like it or not, is where we are. And so with that in mind, I just want to introduce some questions. Let me first define a couple terms that will be helpful for us as we discuss this. First, there is what we would call same-sex attraction versus gay identity. Same-sex attraction versus gay identity. Same-sex attraction is this experience of, of realizing that you are attracted to the members of the same gender, uh, to the point that you are romantically captivated and aroused. And so that is an experience or a feeling that some will experience, and some they would say that is usually not chosen, but something that just experience. Um, and so uh, think about this, uh, if, you th- if you consider your own self and whatever attraction you have uh, of opposite sex, it didn't just something you chose, it's just something you experienced. Now, this is counter to what we would call gay identity. This is the person who experiences same-sex attraction and goes down a path that leads them to say, I am. I am gay. And so now their identity is wrapped up in their sexual attraction, and somewhat in a different way. And in any other areas of one life, if if you consider one aspect to be your personhood, be it your ethnicity, your financial status, your gender, we would believe that person, uh, and, and say to be necessarily defined by that, we would call and believe that person prejudicial. You are prejudicial to think that your identity is wrapped up in these things, but nonetheless, that is where it is. And so there is a, a cultural push uh, to call it virtuous. And so, understand the difference between gay identity and same-sex attraction. Now, with that in said, I could speak to the problem of seeing your identity wrapped up in your sexuality. And in fact, making the sexuality your idol. And that is another issue altogether. But when someone says, I am gay, there is a lifting up of that part of your life to say, this is who I am. In other words, it's not normal for many people to say, I'm heterosexual, and to say, this is my identity. It is just a part of who I am, not who I am, or the main identifying mark of who I am. Now, let me look at some scriptures just briefly to talk about what does the Bible say specifically about this, 
before we talk about our reaction to this. We see uh, a case of this in Gen- Genesis chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. In Genesis 19, verse 4, 4 and 5, it is the story of what we know as Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it is a city that faced the judgment of God. And we see uh, sp- specific examples of the interaction with Lot and angels uh, who are there in this passage. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, referring to Lot and the angels that are there. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now there is some uh, debate that some uh, scholars have said of what is the meaning of knowing in this case. Uh, Well, you know, in the Bible we see this level of knowing referring to an intimacy that you see in regards to a man and a wife and a husband and wife relationship. But in case there was some doubt about this, Jude, the book of Jude in the New Testament, refers back to this case in verse 7. In Jude, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I think when you combine Jude 7 with Genesis 19, it is beyond a doubt referring to uh, a same-sex, not only attraction, but fulfillment in a gay lifestyle. In case there was any doubt, Jude, or Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 22 Referring to the law, it says simply, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Chapter 20, verse 13. Something similar. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This is God's word given to the people as they're going into the promised land, realizing that this was the lifestyle of the people around as they were going into the promised land. So it's very clear in the law. So we go to the New Testament and the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 uh, through verse 32 speaks to this, but specifically verses 26 through 27. And Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is speaking about a society. A society that no longer regards God, no longer thanks God. And the Bible, using this terminology, God giving them up to certain desires. Because of this root of not regarding God as God and not being thankful. And so we come to verse 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now let me just speak to this a little bit. As we read this passage, first, I don't believe that this is talking about someone who in their personal experience has disregarded and and God has given them a reprobate desire and in their constantly pushing away from God, pushing away of God's design that God gives them up to homosexuality. 
Rather, I think it is speaking to a society as a whole. That when a society as a whole disregards God, no longer is thankful to God, rejects His authority, rejects His right, that God will allow that society to experience uh, this growing reprobate in a society as a whole. Meaning that there will be those who are born into this life And just as we are all born sinners with desires anti-God's rule, so too there will be some who will be born with this reprobate, this desire, this uh, tendency toward a same-sex attraction. That it is a symptom of God's judgment on a society as a whole. I remember in the 90s as we were going into this and, and there was this big argument was whether we were born gay or not. And the argument was as if we were born gay, therefore God allowed this to be, and he therefore designed it to be, so do not speak against God's working. The point simply made is that we are all born with desires that are anti-God, heterosexual or homosexual. There is within us still, every single one of us, a tendency towards sexual sin. We could call it polygamy. We could call it adultery. We could call it homosexual. But there is within us a tendency to go against God. And so the question, is God anti-gay? The answer simply is, no, God is anti-self-rule. And in the self-rule, there is a whole world of expression of sin. And so it's not just that God is anti-gay. God is anti-polygamy. God is anti-adultery. God is pro-sex within marriage. God is anti-greed. God is anti-gluttony. God is anti-lying. He is anti-self-rule and all the expressions that it flows in it. And so whether someone is born with these desires or not is not really the point. Because we are all born with desires that are anti to the rule of God. So, let's keep on going. A couple other texts I'd like to bring to your attention. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When the Bible is listing out these sins, he's talking about those who live by and practice these things. Those who do not repent, but see this as the way of living. This is your lifestyle, without any repentance, without any confession, to say, yes, this is acceptable, and I live this way. Okay, understand, you are not living under God's rule. And if there is not a heart bent toward God's rule in this life, there will not be a heart under God's rule in eternity. And so, he's just bringing out Simple truths, painful though they are. I think that as we read this, every single one of us should experience some sense of conviction 
of knowing that there are some behaviors, some attitudes that God rules as out of bounds. But the good news is verse 11. And such were some of you. Notice the tense, past tense. We do not have to be continually characterized by this. There is a work that God wants to do where this can be as a past tense. But such were some of you. But you were washed. The good news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to all these areas, including homosexuality, same-sex attraction, including uh, lust, including greed, including being a drunkard, a thief, a reviler, all these things. God can wash us of these things. You were sanctified. That means you are being set apart for God. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when God sees you, He doesn't see this practice of homosexuality. He doesn't see this past. He sees Jesus and His righteousness. And He sees the Spirit of God. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God wants to put us under His rule. And it doesn't really matter what our past is. We are qualified by the grace of God and the work of God to be fit into the rule. And God now says, I want you to be identified, not by some segment of your life. I don't want you to be identified by your past mistakes. I don't want you to be identified by the impulses of your heart. I want you to be identified by the glorious name of Jesus Christ. And he offers it to us to be our identity, to be our joy, to be our future and our past. And then he supplies with the name of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, his Holy Spirit, to come inside of us. And so this is a good news, but it provides a way of repentance. And 1 Timothy, one more passage. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual and moral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Why is the word of God given through the law? Why is the Old Testament given? For us to understand what is recognized as under God's authority and what is outside of God's authority. We all have a tendency to be outside of his authority and he wants us to know when we're out. A good umpire will call an out and out. And that is what the law of God does. But there's some things we may ask about this. What about that couple that are committed to one another and a monogamous relationship, though it is a homosexual relationship. What if they are committed? I would just bring to you one passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, God is speaking through Paul to the church of Corinth. And he's asking them to rebuke a couple. This couple, we get the idea that they are committed to one another. That there is now an exclusive relationship that is happening in this couple. But this couple is done, is done with the stepmother. 
And Paul is saying, as such, this is outside of the realm of God's authority of where sexual intimacy is to take place. That he says even the world recognizes it. And so we just bring to this attention that here's a couple that is committed to one another, but yet it is out of bounds, and so the Scripture speaks to it. What about Jesus? Jesus, did he ever really say anything about homosexuality? Okay, you're, you're quoting to me about Paul, and you're quoting to me about the Old Testament. I don't like them anyway. I like Jesus. What does Jesus have to say? I've looked it up, and Jesus never said homosexual. And he didn't. You don't see the words in red, so to speak, regarding homosexuality. But I would bring to your attention a passage found in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, if you'll turn there briefly, verse 20 through 23. Oftentimes, Jesus was asked about divorce and about marriage. Every single time when he was asked about divorce, what is an acceptable form of marriage, he always referred back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You see this in, in Matthew 19, Matthew 5. You see this in uh, Mark chapter 10. You see this in Luke. Every time he's referring, he says, if you want to have a question about where does sexual intimacy take place, then look in Genesis 2, 24, where he says, a man and a wife come together and God brings them together and they two become one. And so in so doing... He's identifying this is where sexual intimacy takes place. And then he goes further and says anything outside of that should be celibate. Celibate. So if I was to line up a group of women here on this stage and you asked me the question, where is your wife? I don't have to go through every single woman and say, not her, not her, not her, not her. That would take way too long. I could just simply point to Julie and say, that's my wife. And everyone understands, okay, all the others are out. This is her, and this is the one that he's married. So too, Jesus isn't necessarily going through every varied form of sexual expression and saying this is not and this is. All he has to do is point to marriage and say this is it. But nonetheless, in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 23, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus says, you want to know what makes them so they're unclean before God? What makes them separate from God? It comes from your heart. And I think that, that if you look carefully in this text and you looked at your own heart, you will find yourself there. There will be one of these that gets you. And probably more than one. But one of the things he mentions is sexual immorality. The word that's referenced here, the Greek word is pornea, uh, where we get pornography. And it is somewhat of a catch-all term for all sexual activity outside of marriage. And so when he says uh, pornea, what comes out of your heart, what comes from, from who you are, is what defiles you. He is regarding uh, homosexuality as well, because all the hearers would have not doubted that homosexuality is a part of that list. 
And so no, he didn't refer to it specifically. He didn't have to. It was a general term that all the hearers would have known. You would say, well, pornography or uh, homosexuality didn't exist back then. Are you kidding? All you have to do is look at the historical, uh, archaeological evidences of it, of that Roman time period. Have you not remembered history? Galicola and Nero and all these, this was a rampant part of all that was around. So yes, the hearers would have been aware as Jesus refers to sexual immorality, knowing that it was part of that. So here's the next question. Well, what, what about, it just seems like, Pastor, you're just picking and choosing Old Testament commands. I mean, I've read the Old Testament. I've, I've done some of this. And, uh, you, know, you know, the Bible says in there that you should not eat pork. You know that is in there? And then it also has things like, well, you shouldn't mix your, your, your fabrics that you wear. Don't wear cotton with something else. I think that tie might mess me up here today. Or you shouldn't eat cheese, eat milk products with, with meat. It was terrible being in Israel in that you could never have pizza. Italian food just wasn't in existence there. But you, you, so are we just picking and choosing? I, I, the same Leviticus that talks about uh, this being an abomination and, and hated before God also talks about this. Are we just picking and choosing? Or as one uh, has said uh, recently, Andy Stanley, he said, well, I think that maybe we just need to unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity. And his desire to be simplistic, he has been oversimplistic and uh, thus somewhat damaging. Very much damaging. The, the idea that we need to understand is that the New Testament flows from the Old Testament. There is a continuous aspect of this. But when Jesus came, he did something radically different with how we worship. How we worship. In the Old Testament, you have ceremonial law that is in regard to how we worship. And it deals with sacrifices. It deals with what makes it unclean. In the Old Testament, you also have national laws because God was working through a nation, making a people, city-state of the Jewish nation to bring glory to God. And such, such, he had these laws given to the nation. And he gave such things as what the punishments would be if there was the breakings of the law. And then you also have the moral law in the Old Testament that speaks to what God expects of his people and the behavior. When Jesus came in Matthew 5, he said, I've come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And so you cannot unhitch the law. You cannot unhitch the Old Testament from Jesus and that he has come to fulfill these things. So the moral law, you see that Jesus now becomes the way which we get to God and thus rules out the necessity for the ceremonial law. Now, Jesus issues in not one nation, not one people, but a way of salvation for all peoples. And so, no longer is the glory of God given through a national, prosperous place of Israel. But now, there's people scattered throughout all the nations to bring them to God. So, no longer the, the national laws and civil laws are no longer needed. Jesus himself fulfills all the moral laws and in providing salvation for us makes a way that we too now can follow and love God with all our heart so that we can do his law by the spirit of God and so to fulfilling the law of God 
So what does that mean? Well, in short, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. The moral law outlines God's own character, his integrity, his love, faithfulness. And so all the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, and commitment to our family is still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery. And all the sexual ethic of the Old Testament is restated throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reformed a commandment that is still in force today, we do not honor all the Old Testament texts in the same way. We take a cue from Jesus. It's because of what he claimed his death would achieve that we do not follow the Old Testament in the same way. We take a cue from him. We do use his work and the cross. So the Old Testament is teaching on sexual ethics, though it's restated in the New Testament, is still binding on Christians today. When Gentiles came and became believers in Christ, they asked the Jews, what do we do? Do we have to do all these ceremonial laws? And they said, no. But what they said is, keep yourselves from idols and the foods thereof, and keep yourself sexually pure. These are two issues that still maintain force today. So then the next question. Well, can't Christians just agree to disagree on this? One of the things that, that I've dealt with in our church, there's been some I've had to speak and confront about this issue of homosexuality. And one of the things that comes back to me is, well, you know what? There are other Christian churches that accept this. I think the problem is with you, Pastor. So, well, all I can share with you is what Scripture says and is my authority. So what about this? Can't we just agree to disagree? Romans 14, Paul does speak about disputable matters, what we call private convictions, where there may not be some agreement on these things. However, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also reminds the readers that there are some things of first report, of first belief. In other words, these things that pertain to the gospel. And so there is a priority, according to 1 Corinthians 15, of there are some things that we cannot disagree on, and there are some things that are. Those things pertaining to the gospel, we cannot disagree on. So what area does the issue of homosexuality fit into? Does it affect the gospel? There's a couple passages that indicate that yes, it does. One of which we've just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. If we disregard what sin is and redefine it, then the basis for the gospel has been utterly changed. There are those like Jen Hatmaker, as they're writing, they're starting to waver on some of this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20 through 21, talks about the end times and makes a, a statement about what's accepted and what's not. Revelation chapter 2, referring to the church in Thyatira, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, lest they repent of her works. 
I read that and it tells me that Jesus is looking in on the church and he's making an analysis, an evaluation. He says there are some who are leading by their teaching an, an openness into sexual morality. For that situation, the church is to rebuke and the church that does not rebuke, that they too are to be refuted by Jesus himself. There are some forms of tolerance that can be sinful. So, let's read this. What about those believers who experience same-sex attraction? First of all, you need to know that that can happen. That there can be believers who are wrestling and struggling with same-sex attraction. What about them? The first response to that person is, like anyone, you talk to the Lord. You pray about this and discuss it with Him. Look to the Word of God. Secondly, I would encourage you to think rightly about this. What does that mean? Feelings of same-sex attraction do not make you extra bad. Get that? They don't make you extra bad. You see, the simple fact of it is, when we disobey God, we all are alike and that we are far from God. And so there is a danger that we may say to ourselves, okay, I'm dealing with this. That makes me extra cursed and God cannot accept me. Friends, when you get to that point, then you are not listening to the gospel. And so we're not extra bad because we're dealing with this. Nor should they define you, your feelings, your appetite. I don't really go around introducing myself. Hi, my name is Jared and I'm a carnivore. Our appetite isn't what defines us. Yes, I gladly eat meat. Some of you don't, but I do. It's okay. That's not uh, of first importance, all right? But I'm not defined by that appetite. And so we need to be aware and think rightly about this. Third, I encourage you to seek the support of someone else. And this is where the Christian community must step up. Colossians chapter 4 verse 6 says this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is where I believe we fell many times, where I and my community have fallen many times. Here's what happens. We start thinking all of American life, and we start thinking through the political lens. And as we think through the political lens, there is an enemy and there is a friend. And many times we see those pushing a homosexual agenda as the enemy, and we can't think rightly about it. And so we no longer have the grounds to speaking with grace and seasoned with salt. And in our conversations with one another, we'll say things, they're taking it all over. And we'll have other comments referring to the homosexual agenda. Usually in a negative light and a derogatory light. Here's the thing that we're not catching. It may be your grandchild listening in who's struggling with same-sex attraction, and they're afraid to tell anybody 
Because they know from your offhand conversations with one another that it's not going to be received well. And it causes a problem because they don't know, they don't hear speech seasoned with salt and grace. Because we feel comfortable because we are together with one another thinking we all think the same things. And we therefore give permission to one another to speak less than graceful, less than with salt. The salt being the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will parade that. And we're not aware of the damage that can be done by those listening in. fact of the matter is, is that those wrestling with same-sex attraction are going to listen to this sermon before they ever come here. And they'll listen to you before they ever talk to you. And how you talk about sin will lay the groundwork for whether or not they will ever open up and talk to you. And we're not just talking about someone that we don't know. We're talking about believers who are wrestling with this. And they need desperately a community of people that knows the grace of God, that knows what sin is and will call them to holiness, but at the same time understand what it's like to be forgiven. Because we are all guilty of sexual sin. And we have all experienced the grace of God and forgiving work of God. And they need to hear someone speak at that point. And so for those believers, seek the support of others. But I would say to us as a church, will we be supportive? We're not supporting them to continue down this road of same-sex attraction. We can accept people where they are without having to approve where they are we accept them and we prove God and we call people to God and that is something that we've got to figure that out so what about the non-christian friend someone comes up to you and they say I'm wrestling with this or they may not be wrestling anymore and they're saying I'm outing I'm open what do you do? First, thank them for talking to you. Thank them for the fact that they opened up to you. There was something about you that they felt that they could share this with, which is really unusual if they believe that you're going to a church like this. But it speaks to your relationship. Don't stop liking them. Don't stop being their friend. But you will let them know at some point that as a Christian, you have a different take on sexuality that's different from all the culture together. Let them know they're not being rejected. Listen to them. Ask them questions. Figure out what has brought this to their, their life. What have been the reactions of other people as they're dealing with this? Is this hard? Is this difficult? Why are you asking these questions? So you can pray for them. So you know how to pray for them. Sharing the gospel with them needs to be done in the context of friendship. Must be done in the context of friendship. When we have a couple come and visit, same-sex attraction, are they open? What do we do as a church? Hey, 
Thanks for coming today. I'm glad you're here. What's your name? You get to know them. How many of you would have come back if the first time you came here, I noticed something about you that was off with God, and I hit it right then? You kind of, you're a little bit of a drunkard, aren't you? I smell it. Woo, look at that gluttony coming in. Are you lying to me? We don't do that, do we? That's not how we draw people to the Lord. Someone living together outside of marriage, that's not the first thing we're going to hit. What are we going to do? We're going to start with Christ. We're going to look to him, and we're going to talk about him, and we're going to rejoice in him. We're going to worship who Jesus is, and I'm going to let Jesus deal with some of that in, in people's life, and he'll deal with it in a better way, and a more powerful way than what any human can do. But we're going to keep lifting up Jesus. But when we do this, we're going to also emphasize repentance. We've got to bring out Repentance. And I think that something's missing, and a lot of times in the American church, we will talk about gospel, we'll talk about how we want to get to heaven, and when we die, we want to be with God, right? And we've got to admit, we've got to believe, we've got to confess, but listen, all throughout the scripture, you see that a part of the gospel is repenting, turning from your sin, and turning to God. And listen, the homosexual is doing the same thing that the other unbelievers are doing as well. You see, the Bible calls all of us to lay down our life and take up the cross and follow him. We're all alike in that. And one of the things that, that maybe we don't see that is perhaps maybe we don't see our own need to surrender ourselves and our desires. That we have to allow God to cross our will. And listen, the homosexual needs to see you surrendering your will to God. They don't have it any harder. Did you know that? We all are self-willed, and it all requires us to surrender our life. We all have to give permission to God. We all have to lay down our life, take up the cross and follow Him. How do we do this as a church, as a witness in a pro-homosexual world? There's a couple of things that speaks very clearly in this. In a pro-homosexual society... Our quality of life together, our community, has to be essential. Has to be essential. Why? You see, there is a homosexual community, and they do it well. And they'll say, I love you how you are. Forget about all those people that condemn you. I embrace you. I love you. And let's just be friends. Let's just support one another. And in a society that has been oppressive to them, they have been a support for one another. And when you're, God's calling someone out from that community, what community do they go to? You see, the thing is, God has brought the gospel with the thing called a church, a community of people who are saved and forgiven by God, who share with one another, who love with one another. And the idea is that when you follow Christ, you enter into a community. But they've got to see a community. They can't just see an event. They can't just see a Sunday morning play. There has to be relationships where they get the sharing and loving and interdependence on one another. And so in a society that is pro-homosexual, if we do not become a community, we will cease to be. And in that I thank God for a society 
that is anti-Christian because it forces us to be Christians. It forces us to be a church or we will cease to be altogether. It throws it out there. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 says, We are God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. You know what it tells us? The truth comes out from this thing called a family of God. John 13 verse 35 says, Well, Jesus said, By this everyone know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Mark chapter 10 verse 29 and 30 says, Truly I tell you, no one has left home, our brothers, our sisters, our mother, our father, our children are fields for me in the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is talking about the church. If you leave a community because you're coming to Christ, he says the idea is that the Holy Spirit is working among a people where you can become part of that community, interdependent of one another. The second thing that must be critical is our message of the gospel must maintain clarity. Not only does our community must be a real community, our gospel message must be clear. What do we mean by that? It is the essential gospel without additions or subtractions. Without additions or subtractions. What do I mean by additions? I was meeting with a couple and they were wrestling because their daughter was uh, living in the open lifestyle. And they were struggling because do we let her come for Christmas? Do we let her celebrate with us? And, and at the same time, they had a son that had left their previous marriage and, and had an open relationship, an adultery relationship, and they let him come. And the daughter rightfully called it out as hypocrisy. They shared with me, and I said, well, you know, your daughter's absolutely right. In other words, you've added to the gospel. To say, the gospel is only for the people who live a normal life, who live a culturally appropriate life. Friends, culturally appropriate is about to change altogether. The gospel is for everyone, and it does not add to it. In other words, it, you come and you're saved by grace alone through Christ alone. And the Spirit of God works in you. And there's no extra measure of hoops you go through. Let grace of God and the Spirit of Christ do that work. But it's Christ alone. You do not add and you do not subtract for it. We need to be clear that we all are sexual sinners. And none of us are coming at this from a position of superiority. We all need God's grace. So the last question so should I attend that gay marriage? How many of you have a relative that's a homosexual? Raise your hand. Look around. This is a question I've had to answer. You know why we chose this topic? Because I'm tired of answering the question one by one. We're all facing this. And it may not be your relative. It may be your friend. When I come to your gatherings, I'm coming and I'm meeting people who are open in a homosexual lifestyle. So what do we do with that? First of all, I would just say a couple things. One, how's your relationship with that person? How's your relationship with that person? Two, have you had an open conversation with who you are and what you believe with this person? When we follow Christ, our sexual immorality, our sexual ethic is totally messed up according to the world standard. 
You mean sex only happens in one relationship? Yes, husband and wife. I mean, I can't even think about things outside of it. No, no. I can't even look. Oh, you're, you're just crazy. Yeah, well, you know, Christ is counterculture. And I'm laying down my desires for Christ. So have you had that conversation with that person? Do they know where you're at? Third, keep in mind, what does the marriage ceremony mean? Are they calling for witnesses? Are they calling for witnesses to this marriage? I think that's something you've got to consider. Is it a party in celebration of this marriage? It's one thing to love a person. It's another thing to celebrate the sin. And these are all questions you have to think through. I'm not going to tell you in every situation this is what you need to do. But if you feel as you read this and you think through these questions, you cannot in good conscience attend, then you better make sure that you love that person and you spend time with them and you share with them in a way that they get that you love them, but yet you just can't be there because of what you believe in who you are. There is a way that you can do it where they don't feel like you hate them. But there are some, and their attitude, it doesn't matter what you say. They will automatically regard you as the enemy. But if they do, let them walk past your love for them to get to that conclusion. As a church, I want to give you just two or three books if you're interested in knowing more about this. It's a little booklet called Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. There's another book called Do Ask, Do Tell, Let's Talk, Why and How Christians Should Have Gay Friends by Brad Hambrick. He's a resource that's right here in the Durham area. Another one that I would recommend is by Rosario Butterfield. Rosario Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It'd be worth reading. If you don't like reading, she has several talks on the YouTube, uh, and you can look up Rosario Butterfield there. She also is somewhat local, a, a Durham resident. But I found all of these to be extremely helpful as I thought through what Scripture has to say about this. I pray that as we continue on, and forgive me for the time, but I pray that we take this as a challenge, not for us to go run and hide and be fearful, but that we would be compassionate and courageous like we've never done before. And we can because of Christ. Let's pray.